I wanted my son, who was 13 at the time, to experience the sacred, just so he had it in his bones. And I hope that it will just always stay with him. In the same way that my Baha'i upbringing kept me connected to an idea of a higher power, to the idea of the power of prayer, to the idea that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience on a journey into the divine light. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we're talking about a soul revolution, and we're also talking about how physical objects can be part of religious practice. I'm here in studio with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And we have each done one of these interviews, so it's going to be fun for each of us to say what we got out of the chance to talk to the person we did. And to kick it off, I got to talk with Rain Wilson. Lots of folks will know from the office, but quite a thinker in spiritual terms. And I have to say that it was a bit of a mind shift to talk to someone who is known for being expert at creating awkward moments, awkward, cringe-worthy moments and characters, and then to open this box of just how thoughtful he is. So, yes, a, a funny guy, a very talented guy, but also a very thoughtful and spiritually-based guy. So his book is called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, and it talks about the benefits that spirituality gives to us. And he's kind of even directing the book, for the most part, to people who might not have a particular denomination or a tradition. And he's so well-read, and so you'll hear he he's going to reference all kinds of uh, scriptures, all kinds of thinkers here. He's been a seeker. Yep. And he was really great to talk to. Here's Rain Wilson. One of the struggles I had, and I talked to my wife uh, when I was writing the book uh, about this issue, was that I'm no guru. I don't want to be a guru. I don't want people to read this book and go, wow, Rain Wilson is so wise. I've got questions for him. And Rain, what should I do about X, Y, and Z? I don't know. I'm a deeply flawed guy. I struggle. I've fallen down a lot. I've read a lot. I'm going to share some big ideas. I'm going to throw a lot of spiritual spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks, as I say. I guess for me, I want to start off by quoting the great Julia Cameron, the writer of The Artist's Way, who said at one point in time, I come to spirituality not out of virtue, but out of necessity. And I just love that. And I relate to that because I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith. Baha'is believe in the essential divinity of all the world's faiths. So I grew up thinking about spirituality and life's biggest possible questions a great deal as a child and as a teen. We talked about death and the soul and God and the meaning of life and why we have suffering and what our purpose is and connecting to God and what prayer is, what is sacred. These conversations were rich and ripe in my life. But as I turned away from religion and faith and spirituality in my 20s, because I just wanted to go be an artist in New York City, I became very, very unhappy and suffered from what I now know to be a number of mental health issues, crippling anxiety, depression, occasional, rare and occasional suicidal ideation, alienation, great discomfort, pain, loneliness, and addiction. And that's when in my heart of hearts, in my gut of guts, I thought to myself, well, perhaps I've... I've thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater. <laughs> there might be spiritual solutions to some of the pain that I'm undergoing. So that set me on a course to really dig in to the spiritual experience and to figure out what it was that I most believed. So on this spiritual journey that's over a period of years, decades really, you're moving in you don't know what direction, but it seems to somehow bring you back to where you started. Tell me about that journey. So I started with the first question, which is, do I believe in God or is there a God? 
This took me a good five to 10 years of search. Again, this came from a deep struggle. I needed to find answers. And I'm so grateful for the suffering that I underwent in my 20s and early 30s that pushed me to seek, that pricked my curiosity because it forced me to kind of dig into these questions because otherwise you can sit there for decades and many people do. But I read the world's great religious texts. I read the Bible. I read the Quran. I read the Bhagavad Gita, the writings of the Buddha, a bunch of stuff around the Vedas and Upanishads, some of the ancient, the most ancient holy texts, which to me still have some of the greatest life wisdom inherent in them. And I read a lot about Native American spirituality, which helped me a great deal in my understanding of God, the creator. And while doing this, I was able to go back and read holy texts of the Baha'i faith. When you grow up a member of a religion, you often aren't directly really reading the texts themselves. They're being interpreted for you at a Sunday school class or children's class or through your parents. So I was able to then have my own personal experience of reading the writings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, and Abdu'l-Baha, his his eldest son that was a great spiritual teacher. And that regalvanized my belief in the Baha'i faith, and it felt true to me and the most appropriate and the most practical as well. So you talk about being on this search or this journey, but what was it that you recognized at some point that you thought, I've arrived, or I found part of what I was looking for, enough that you chose to stay there as your spiritual home? I was reading and I came across uh, the example of uh, Wakantanka from the Lakota Sioux tradition. And the phrase Wakantanka, which is the name for the creator, means the great mystery. So I immediately responded because I love that. As an artist, I love that. I'm drawn to that idea of God as the great mystery. Not as like Odin or Thor or some like manly man with superpowers. So Wakantanka is known through nature. That's the only way to know the great mystery. How do you know him? You know him or it, she, whatever it is, divine force, through the incredible panoply of metaphor that is inherent in nature, through the power of the winds, the strength of the sun, the beauty of spring opening blossoms on the trees, the the silence of the forest, the the scent of the grasslands. These are how we know the divine, the great mystery. And this God is beyond time and space. Uh, it's God of our ancestors. It's the God of love. It's the God of the seven directions, north, south, east, west, up, down, and the seventh direction, in, internal, into the heart. I could go on and on, but suffice it to say that for me, it was very important to completely separate God from any kind of beingness. David Bentley Hart talks about this in his magnificent work called The Experience of God, stopping thinking of God as a being among other beings. And he he says what most people think of God is actually what is what was known in the Greek tradition as the demiurge, which is a God-man, again, with superpowers like Odin. And I needed to remove God from any patriarchal or male sense and to know God through nature. This was very revelatory for me. So there was, I spent a couple years, Steve, in all honesty, saying to my friends, I don't believe in God, but I do believe in Wakantanka. Mm. Now this feeds into the Baha'i tradition in the sense that the main way that we know God in the Baha'i faith or his principal title, let's say, is... Um, the unknowable essence. God is known and repeatedly referred to by Baha'u'llah as the unknowable essence. And in the Baha'i faith, we say a prayer every day in which we say, I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. So we're created to know God, and yet God is labeled as the unknowable. So we're supposed to know the unknowable, and that is the center of the spiritual path. And again, that ties in with this idea of the great mystery 
and and I just love it. I get lit up like a pinball machine when I think about that. Right, right. So even though you have this spiritual home, it sounds like you're still open to exploring your spirituality. Yeah. Yeah, it's a journey, you know. It's not an arrival because I'm on a path and I know like one one hundredth of one percent about spirituality and that keeps me humble and it keeps me moving forward and it keeps me curious. To us, this book seemed like you had written it for people who might not be attached to a specific denomination or a religious tradition, but you do have a lot in here that applies to people who do. And I'm wondering what you hope people who have a spiritual tradition or a religion will get from this. I wanted to make it accessible for the average uh, young person that wasn't thinking very much about spirituality or religion. Um, I want people to be able to get something out of the experience of reading this book because I think probing deep philosophical and spiritual questions is valuable for everyone. But I guess for the people of faith, the second half of the book is really aimed at this idea of a spiritual revolution. And I think that all too often in Western culture and especially in the the spiritual but not religious set, we think of spirituality as something that fulfills us personally, that touches our heart, that transforms us to be a little bit wiser and more serene and it quells our anxiety. And then we leave it at that. And I think for the average churchgoer, you might go a little further than that. Then you bring community into it. And you're like, I want communal prayer, communal meditation, communal service. That's wonderful too. But what I'm talking about in terms of a spiritual revolution, and this is the kind of like sociological component of what I'm writing about in the book, and that is social transformation through spiritual tools. And I'm talking about a radical revolution. I'm talking about a radical reconception of how we do most everything by using spiritual tools. And that can be your Christian tools. It can be your Muslim tools, your Jewish tools, Buddhist, what have you. But we need to kind of rethink how we do most everything in contemporary America. The systems we can see are breaking down because systems that we've created are founded on the very worst qualities of humanity. Competition, contest, one-upsmanship, every man for himself, individuality, kind of chronic individuality. Of course, there's a certain measure of individual individuation that is healthy and, and allows a certain measure of freedom that is crucial for happiness and well-being. But one example that I've been talking about recently is healthcare. So, it's come to light over the last couple of decades that these kind of hedge funds have been buying up healthcare facilities, doctor's offices, medical groups, hospitals, rehab centers, et cetera. And then they redline them uh, for profitability and they, they close down and sell off the ones that aren't profitable, usually in poor neighborhoods. And rather than simply legislating a change in the laws that kind of regulate who can buy and sell medical facilities. We really have created a for-profit medical system in a country where a medical system, I believe, getting to the roots of what Jesus would espouse, needs to serve the poor and needs to heal people. And that's why the most powerful, richest country in the history of human civilization is unable to heal people because it's based on kind of consumerist profit above all. I'm not espousing an end to capitalism. I'm not, this is not a socialist lefty kind of thing. It's, it's again, going to spiritual principles. Why don't we redefine completely from top to bottom what the purpose of a healthcare system is? Then, and this is the long-winded answer to your question, Steve Perry. Don't stop believing, Steve Perry. <laughs> don't stop <laughs> This is where a person of faith can say, how can we take what Jesus said in the Bible, a red letter Bible, and put that into practice in such a way that it allows for social transformation? And 
uh, makes the world a better place because that's the other part of the spiritual path that we don't talk enough about. So a phrase we hear a lot is, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And you have a whole chapter called, Let's Build a New Religion. Sort of feels like Build-A-Bear to me. I'll pick what features I want. Why religion specifically? So the fastest growing uh, religious movement in the Western world is spiritual, but not religious. As a member of a religious faith, and I'm deep and good friends with members of many different religious faiths, I see that there are tremendous benefits to religion itself, not just spirituality, but moving past that to being able to harness the energy of community towards social good. Being part of a group of people that are seeking transcendence, seeking to be of service to the world, that are loving and supporting and nurturing each other is an incredibly beautiful thing. And, you know, humanity has lost something by jettisoning religion itself. There's a great many benefits to religion, benefits toward the obtaining of well-being through uh, being a member of a group, which is which allows you to be part of something larger than yourself because we live in a very solipsistic contemporary culture. I certainly understand why people have turned away from religion and religion is responsible for a lot of tremendous ills and violence and judgment and, and vitriol that are detrimental to the growth and, and maturity of humanity. But at the same time, uh, we really have lost something and that's worth exploring. So the ideas that you come to in the book, not only about personal spirituality, but about the need for spiritual community, how do those ideas tie back to your Baha'i tradition? And where do we see traces of that thought in this push of yours for a spiritual revolution? There is uh, education in spiritual virtues as a tool for social transformation. So this is a little bit different than like the Sunday school concept of like right and wrong. It's a little bit different than that. It's about the fact that like, Steve, you seem kind and you seem sensitive and like a really good listener and you seem very warm hearted. So those are my perceptions, right? Those are also qualities of the divine. Those, you might have little fragments, little shards of those qualities in yourself, but God has them in total majesty and magnanimity. So these spiritual virtues, kindness, patience, creativity, love, honesty, humility, are all qualities of the divine that we can grow in ourselves and we need to nurture and grow in ourselves so that we you know, reach the, the point of our deaths, the point of our passing, fulfilled, maximized, our, our, our divine essences maximized. But we can also educate children in them. And it's fascinating work because I've done a little bit of work in this space that if you say like compassion and you make it the virtue of the week and you teach kids about compassion, you say, we're gonna observe compassion all week. Come back next week, we're gonna talk about what we observed. And again, it's not like be a good girl, don't be, don't be mean, not right and wrong. It's just like, notice compassion, witness compassion. You say, oh, I saw this guy and there was a homeless man and he, he saw the homeless man and he bent over and gave him a sandwich and, um, and it was really beautiful. And then you train the kids because children need to be trained into witnessing these spiritual gems that they can then start to grow in themselves. This isn't taught at schools, obviously. Oftentimes it's not taught in the right way at Sunday schools. And oftentimes for parents, it's kind of like the kid will tell a lie and, and they'll get in trouble and the parent will be like, don't lie. But the parent hasn't spent the time to nurture the kid and to grow their honesty and their appreciation of honesty and how beautiful it feels to live an honest life. So that's a part of an education. And as simplistic as this sounds, and it does sound a little Sunday schoolish, it is profound. And it, if we want to have large scale social change, then virtues education, I think, is one of the keys in that direction. I highly recommend a book called The Family Virtues Guide by Linda Kavlin Popov. And it's, it's a magnificent, easy to use guide with your children in this type of education. We'll be right back in good faith. 
Welcome back. This is In Good Faith. Rain, one part of the book I'd like to focus on because I, I thought it was really a cool exercise was in your chapter where you ask five questions about what's sacred. And you asked this to us as readers. So, of course, I got a chance to think through what really is sacred to me or what do I respect or think should be sacred to everybody. Can I ask you, where is a place that you feel the sacred? I went on a pilgrimage to the Baha'i Holy Land in the north of Israel where the where there's a lot of Baha'i historical sites where the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, is buried. So you can feel the the power there and the and the beauty. And in my week and a half there, two weeks there, I just had such a sense of the sacred, the profound, the holy, the sacrosanct. And then I get back home and it's text messages and emails and I'm stuck in traffic and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wolfing down breakfast because I've got my next meeting and, you know, my kid gets sick and I've got to get him to the doctor. And, and I'm just in life and I'm, and I'm like, I really miss the sacred. So I don't have any answers around this, Steve, but it certainly is missing in our contemporary culture. So you had this remarkable spiritual connection in this place, having lived a lifetime of seeking. You bring all your experience and, and, and knowing what this religious leader has meant to you and your community. You have this experience, but you've brought your teenage son, who's really pretty young. What about his experience? Really, what I wanted to give him was an experience of the sacred, an experience of the holy. It's one thing to just talk about, and we're having a discussion, and someone is listening to this podcast while they're on a a stairmaster, or they're walking the dog, or they're in their car on the way to work, or or something like that. And you can talk about a sacred all you want, but you have to feel it in your bones what that what it means. So I wanted. I wanted my son who was 13 at the time to experience the sacred just so he had it in his bones. And we've spoken about it a little bit since, but I I hope that it will just always stay with him in the same way that my Baha'i upbringing kept me connected to an idea of a higher power, to the idea of the power of prayer, to the idea that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience on a journey into the divine light. And by the way, I don't believe that the sacred necessarily has to be a quote-unquote holy sites or a church or a place of worship. I have had the same experiences in nature, filled with awe and wonder at the, at the splendor of God's creation. And I've had the same experiences while witnessing art, being a part of art and making art, making theater, writing, Uh, hearing words aloud. And I do think that art can also evoke in our hearts that sense of the profound, the sacred, the transcendent that we're all looking for. So these questions got me thinking, do you think a conversation can be sacred? Wow, that's a great question. Hmm. I think any elevated conversation about spiritual topics... Uh, which is, by the way, something that we're encouraged to do as Baha'is is to just engage people. We're not trying to convert them to anything. We're just engaging folks in the bread of life, you know, the conversations about God and the Holy Spirit and the meaning of life. It can be an incredible sacred service to engage in that. And it, and then when you're speaking with true intimacy on a heart-to-heart level with love, yeah, I can, I can... I've had sacred experiences like that. You have this really, I think, useful metaphor in the book about how a child in utero has organs they don't need until they're actually born and that we're developing abilities here that we might need in the next life, but we just don't know exactly how that works. Talk to me about that. Well, this is exactly what we've been talking about. So in this way of understanding the world, the the child is growing elbows and eyelashes and ears and eyes and 
jaws and any pancreases that it's going to need in this world. And it doesn't necessarily need those senses, especially in utero. And if you were to ask a baby, hey, why do you have eyelashes and ears? It would be like, I have no idea. It's it's just kind of there. In this world, we are, uh, from a Baha'i perspective, growing those spiritual virtues that I spoke to you about. And and they certainly do serve us to a certain extent here. I mean, if, if one is humble and kind and honest, you can have a far richer, more meaningful life in this world. But when our bodies drop away and we move on to the next plane of existence in our spiritual journey, then that's what we're taking with us. We're taking with us stuff in this world that are the senses that we will need in the next world, incarnation, heaven, happy hunting grounds, nirvana, bliss, whatever you want to call it, um, that's what we're going to be utilizing. That was Rain Wilson talking about his book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Heather, one thing I loved was that metaphor at the end where he talks about our life now preparing us for a next life, which is a common theme in different faiths. But the image I loved was like a fetus in the uterus. It doesn't need eyes there. It doesn't need ears there. And yet it has them. Right. When he said, if you ask a baby, what do you need those for? It would be, I don't know, they're just there. But then they're born and ta-da, you need your eyes, you need your ears. And, And just the idea that there are spiritual senses and things that we are developing now, we may not know till the next life exactly what we've been prepared for. Yeah. That's kind of a cool idea. And I love how he connected it to the the values that are inherent in our religious traditions. If we believe in kindness and healing and love, then how do the systems that surround us reflect those values? And if they don't, what can we do about it? And, you know, if we train our children, if we train our young people to admire and to seek after these values, then we have a chance of building sustainable systems for our society. Right. That he talks about lots of our spiritual journeys. We stop with, I'm on a personal one, but we forget about that whole community aspect. And that's what he dives into as well, those benefits. So besides senses for the next life... We use our senses in this life, which I think brings us to our next guest. Yes. So I got a chance to talk to Esperant Plate um, about his book, which he wrote like a decade ago. And he was very kind to sort of go back in the archives (laughs) and work with me through his material. But he wrote a book called The History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects. Um, And I'll name five of the objects. The half is sort of a metaphysical experience. But five of those objects are stones incense, drums, crosses, and bread. And he basically used this book to look at how those five objects are central to religious traditions all over the world. And the book is just him telling story after story about finding those different objects and what they mean in different traditions globally. So I love the connection of spirituality with the actual tactile, the physical, the the incense that we smell and what else that could mean. And something as solid as a stone, I'm picturing just a little rocket holding my hand, but he gets all the way to a foundational bedrock kind of a stone. So really interesting to have physical representations of spiritual things. Right. And this is his argument in the book is that religion is about the body's engagement with things. It's it's less about doctrine. We've created all this doctrine to go around, in his argument, to go around the engagement and the physical experiences we have. Um, and he's actually advocating that we return, you know, to this concretized way of understanding religion, that it, in fact, will bring us more if we have a physical experience with religion. Esperant Plate talking to us from his university office in New York, Upper State New York. Let's hear what he has to say. I originally started the book thinking about the senses. I wanted to write a history of the senses. Oh. And uh, and then as I, the more I went on, the more I kept 
coming up against the objects that we sense. You don't smell without smelling something. You don't right. touch without touching something. And those, and actually the objects, I mean, I think this actually speaks to the whole issue of relics. It's the objects just begin to have more and more power. And, and as I sort of read stories about people's, you know, smells and tastes and touches, a handful of objects just kind of kept coming back over and over again. And, you know, these are the ones that kind of were there. Stones was definitely one of the first ones that really just struck me. And this is so central to so many different religious traditions that we find stones everywhere. I saw that you had done part of the, or most of the Camino, it looks like, the Camino de Santiago. And there's the Cruz de Ferro, right? All these stones around. The stone can mean so many different things. It can mean Mm. weight. It can mean... Sin. Go ahead and talk about that more, what the stone sort of represents for us. Yeah, I mean, it certainly represents, uh, you know, all kinds of different things. It's some sort of, you know, on one hand, it's a marker, like in the in the Camino de Santiago. And actually, when I went on that, I, on many of the days, I, somewhere in the morning, I started walking and I, and I found a stone along the way. And I began to think about a friend or a family member. And I took out a little pin or a little marker and put their name on the stone. And then somewhere along the way, I left it because there's all these little altars and shrines all along the way. I mean, people stack stones all across. So I'd leave it in one of the little cairns, one of the little piles that were there. And they had just a little prayer for a family member or, or someone. And it was just sort of a way to give something or, or and be be kind of mindful along the way of because I, I walked alone. So I, I was wanting to kind of bring my family and friends with me. So it was just kind of a, a way, kind of a you know non-denominational uh, way to think about that and do that. They seem to be, that's the, the amazing thing, they seem to be quite ubiquitous around the world. There's this idea of stacking up a bunch of stones to, to mean something. And of course, we see it throughout the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, uh, this language of when the ancient Israelites were across the Jordan River and they're told to create a pile of stones, and this will be a memorial forever. Your children will come to you and ask you, and your grandchildren will ask you, you know, what do these stones mean? And then you begin to tell them the story of how God led you out of slavery and into this promised land. So they stand as a memorial in that kind of way, which I think is just is the thing that really struck me maybe the most is this kind of memorial dimension. Even if they're not obviously like a gravestone, we want it to be hard substance that's going to last for a couple hundred years or so. Uh, and not get worn away. But even when people put little cairns and little piles of stone, stone may last, but the cairn will, of course, fall down. So there's something both permanent about the structure, but also temporary about the fact that the wind can blow it over. And then, and then the metaphorical language about God as as rock, God as a rock, that shows up just all over. God is referred to as rock more than God is referred to as father throughout the Hebrew scriptures, which is something we don't think about all that much. You're making this argument, right, that religion is about bodies and not beliefs. And my question is, that changes all of modern practice. Like, (laughs) if that's true, then everything changes. But that's a place to start. If we think more about God as a rock instead of a father, what does that change? Or how does that change your own vision of who that entity is? It reaffirms that this is metaphorical language that is being used throughout this. Obviously, God is more than just a rock or a father. God is many other things as well. The rock is, it's metaphorical, but it's also there's something real about it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a good reminder that the different sacred scriptures have so many metaphors for God that, I don't know, for me, that's helpful. Because the father one doesn't quite work. So you can choose the one that's helpful for you. Exactly. And yeah, Mary Daly and others reminding us of the, some of the problematic nature of, of these kind of metaphors. Well, I thought incense was so interesting in your history. You talk about, you lay out this idea that when leaders are looking to promote interiority, they start getting rid of these sort of physical, physical, physical experiences. And incense is one where I've been in India and I've experienced that. And then recently, the Greek Orthodox Church near me just dedicated its iconography. So I went and attended and I was not prepared for the incense. And at one point I had to escape because my eyes are burning and stuff. But 
Um, then as I walked around the rest of my day, I'm just perfuming all the spaces I go into. And talk a little bit about incense in these different religious traditions. Obviously, the link to smell is there, right? And there's different incenses, different recipe. God gives the people a recipe for how to make incense in the Hebrew scriptures. And actually, it's laid out. Here's the things that you need to use. And a couple of the things, the ancient Hebrew, we actually don't even know what it's referring to anymore. And all kinds of speculations about some of the things in that list. But there are recipes and there are master incense makers in the 19th century, particularly. And they would be employed by the mosque, master incense makers. And this was their craft. This was their ability was to mix certain scented substances together and make it, of course, burnable in, in some way. It's not an easy thing to do to, to make uh, incense. It's got to smell a certain way. And there are different traditions of different types of smells as well. In Istanbul, one of the mosques that I went to, they pointed out how the incense maker would be sitting over here and burning the incense as prayers were being said. And, and the idea is that it, it's the word, this is the Quran, this is, it's being spoken to us and we're smelling it. And almost the way they talked about it, the smoke itself became connected with the sort of breath of God, the word of God in that way. And it was just sort of a really, a really different way, I think, of thinking about it, even after I'd been thinking about incense for a while, that just kind of really stood out to me of how that operated. And there are all kinds of examples of, of course, incense being burned in temples and mosques and synagogues and churches and in different ways. What was so, interesting yeah. to me yeah. was this, again, in our modern life, we've done a lot to get rid of scent. Like scent yeah. is odor or it's bad. It has taken on a negative connotation, right? And so when I'm thinking about these sacred scriptures that talk about breath, that talk about the breath of God, I don't know if I really have a way to access that until I start thinking about incense. And it's not just baby's breath or this little like delicate thing. It's actually this powerful scent that envelops you. And that was like illuminating for me. Oh, this was a full-on, it wasn't just about something that was happening with the nose, but it was a full-on experience to be surrounded by this. And I just, I found it really, really helpful to think about because as you said, we're just completely separated from that kind of experience. Yeah, absolutely. And we think of the word odor and we think certainly throughout history, I think there's enough evidence to suggest a lot of the incense too came at a time when hygiene was different, was used in, in places where after a few days, you don't have access to um, showers, people, certain smells come off of people and incense, it was a cleansing. It was a way to counteract some of the odors that that were there. In the cathedral in Santiago, there's this massive, several hundred pound, I think it's like 800 pound sensor that swings through the entire aisle of the, the main aisle in the uh, cathedral there. And probably one of the largest sensors in the world. Here's, here's a way to bring people together in one space, but mask some of those smells. Um, so it's sort of smells masking other smells. The thing that became clear too, is it is the ways it affects us and gets us in the mood, right? It gets us in the mood for worship. I was at a Buddhist monastery in the Catskills and there was incense burning. So you walk into this beautiful big meditation hall and there was a light smell of incense through it. And it just had such an effect on my body. It's like all of a sudden I just calmed and it prepared my mind and my body to be able to sit meditatively for an hour, but it, it preps us. And I think, of course, in different ways, a Christian church will use it and it preps people for things and in a different way, a Hindu temple would use it. But I think it's also about preparation and it, create, and it creates a sense of space. Part of that sacred space is being created by the incense. Um, it's not just the four walls and the roof. It's the spaces created by the smells that are inside of it, by the other people that are there. So when I was thinking about your five objects, I actually wondered why not water? That was <laughs> one that came to mind where it's like, oh, I feel like water would be something. So is that like in the top 10, but didn't quite make it into the top five? Or what, I guess, what about these five? Or what made you choose these five and not other five? The reason that I chose the five that I did was because I tried to look at all these different objects and they told me the best stories. The, the, the objects told me the stories. It was in the end, it was just there were more interesting stories with stones. And as I begin to read these stories and these accounts of these different objects, it's like, now that, you know, like that's a good story. There, there were not a, some scientific 
account of why stones instead of beads or such and such and water didn't make the cut. Is there a story that really surprised you that when you came upon it, you were like, this is what the book is about? Probably one of the really significant things that got me going with it was um, being in, we were living in in upstate New York, but went to visit family in Southern California. We were at the beach in San Diego and 70 degrees, of course, there. And it's just this beautiful day and we're hanging out there. We're having a good time, but we knew we had to get in an airplane the next day and fly away. And so my daughter grabs this big chunk of a rock. It was a broken down concrete from some pier or something like that. Anyway, it's really big piece. And she says, if we go now, I have to take this with me. <laughs> she felt this is the thing that um, works for me and made me realize that the natural state of being human is to engage objects and to be engaged by objects. And we're basically taught not to do that as we get older. And I, it, it, it has to be educated out of us um, rather than you know, the other way, other way around. I mean, it, it's a natural course of being to, to engage with objects and um, our education system, of course, slowly weans us off, you know, show and tell and touching things and these kind of motor skills and just turns it into a visual thing. You know, this is what we do in college. We read books and we write papers and it's just this very, you know, visual and intellectual thing. It sort of, you know, becomes very disembodied. Um, in, our, in our religious life, too, I think oftentimes. Um, and it, it certainly, Protestantism, I think, works that way. Uh, but it's, I think, many other traditions as well. There's, I mean, you, you find this, you know, you've probably seen throughout, you know, South Asian traditions as well. There's there's plenty of, plenty of uh, sort of elitist pundits who will tell you, you know, I'll don't, you know, don't don't go to the temple and do all the puja to those to those um, idols there. You know that's that's not what we do. We we need to read the scriptures. You know and do the same thing. So it's not it's not just a Western phenomenon. Although I think it may be particularly demonstrable in the kind of Western Protestantized uh, environment. In good faith, we'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. It's interesting because you talk about these objects as technologies. um, Mm. And so they're sort of pre-literate technologies, perhaps, right? Um, Or oral um, community-based technologies. Then we get into the sort of literacy as the way to interact with God through scripture, through written word. And so many people now say that we've moved into a post-literate society. Uh, Do you think these objects will come back or do you think we'll have uh, some other engagement that reflects the influence of visualness as primary, but also moving away from maybe reading? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, broken open the older styles of worship and certainly added on new possibilities for things. Everything from the kind of mega churches with the kind of rock band up front and the big light show and all that kind of stuff. These are some of the places a lot of religious traditions are diminishing. I think it's that we've disembodied our worship very oftentimes. So it just becomes a lot of words and talking. I grew up in a very conservative Protestant environment, and it was just words all the time. Bible is the only thing you need. Of course, we'd spend hours talking about the preacher's sermon after church and things like that. Just more words about it. Memorizing. But, Lots yeah, of yeah, memorize, memorize, yeah, yeah, memorize, memorize verses, those kinds of things along the way. But I think it's you compare that to the way a lot of my students are experiencing life is you know much more much more embodied. They're on their phones a lot, yeah, but they do get out and they their experiences of transcendence come from being at a dance club. I mean, and I, I totally get that. Of course, this is. What religions have did for thousands and thousands of years, and now we've just said, now we shouldn't do those things. And then, of course, they're going to go to the dance club and find something more interesting there. It's because it's not contemporary religion is is not 
doing anything for our bodies oftentimes. So this is um, your central argument, right? That religion is about bodies and not beliefs. And I was joking, but not really. This changes everything, right? Like about modern practice. So what yeah. what do you see it changing and why is that good? Why is it good that it would change? I think we've got bodies for reasons. Whether or not you believe in a theology that God created these bodies that we're living in or coming from a more materialist scientific viewpoint. I, I think bodies bodies are what produce thought itself. God made these bodies, right? This is what's been given to us. And this should be something to celebrate. I'll walk home after I shut this down and it's about 25 minute walk away. And it's my time I feel my body. I don't just walk and I don't usually don't stick in earbuds and listen to anything on the way. I live out in the middle of nowhere and it's just a very pleasant, peaceful walk. To me, it's this very spiritual experience and it's the way I connect the inner world of myself with the outer world of things going on around me. It allows me to understand that I'm not alone too. Even if I am walking alone, even if I'm in the middle of Manhattan and walking around, I am connected to things and attention to the body allows that in a way that, again, I, th I can spin off into different religious traditions. So that was a question that I was going to ask you is, how do you think this project changed your own personal relationship to spirituality and religion? I think it just, it changed my own perception. They were the ways I perceived the world, these ideas I keep in my head about certain things. But my spiritual life is actually much richer when I'm engaging in a connected way between something we call a mind and a body and something external to ourselves, whether it's another person or a group of people or stones and incense. Um, all these things connect together and cements me more firmly in the physical realm. And that's where my spiritual journey comes from. Walking across northern Spain for the Camino de Santiago was a deeply spiritual experience. The walking itself and the feeling the earth, every step grounds me, connects me with the earth. And the spiritual was deeply physical. It's not separate from it. The spiritual became deeply physical. I've taken a ton of your time, but that leads me to a question, which is, if our experience in religion and in spirituality is physical and can teach us about physical, what does that teach us about the nature of the divine? Does that mean the divine is then different than us? Is it like alt alterity, right? The divine is different than us because it is maybe not physical? Or does that teach us that the divine is physical in some way? What do you mm. think about that? You asked me personally what I thought about these things. I'd say, yeah, what do you think personally? Tell me personally. Yeah, I, it's hard for me not to say the divine is is imminent, that it's within and around this world. It's not, I think part of it too is a, it's a frustration with these, you know, and then they're, they're childhood Sunday school things that, you know, heaven is this place in the clouds where you sing all the time. I'm like, I don't want to spend the rest of eternity singing. I like singing, but that's, that just sounds terrible to me, you know? To me, the divine is just there in in everything, you know, and, and it's not just the beauty, too. I think part of what I learned from a lot of Buddhist kind of training that I've done over the years is that I'm walking down the road. I've got this beautiful country road that I walk down that I go home on, and it's peaceful, and I can hear the birds and see the sunset sometimes or the sunrise sometimes, and that's all beautiful. But then someone is throwing a beer can out the window and it's along there and I'm thinking, oh, that messes up the view. And I'm thinking, this too is part of it. You've got to take it all in. The good, the bad, and the ugly. There's a dead deer on the side of the road and part of me is sad. The deer maybe reminds me of my own death. Maybe it's just like, oh gosh, I hope they clean that up. But it's just, it's all part of this process. It's all part of this long term. Even that aluminum beer can is going to find its way into the soil or Somebody might pick it up before then, but it's all part of this thing. It's not just simple good and evil. There's not just, this is a good view because the sun is shining. This is a bad view because it's raining and wet and the beer can is bad and the, the deer frolicking through the woods is good. Bad things happen in the world and I'd like to see less suffering in the world. And it's important to call these things out, but at the same time, it becomes a little more complicated too, to what, what I call the bad things and what I call the good things. 
That was S. Brent Plate talking to us from Upper State New York about the ideas from his book, The History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects. The, well, the whole idea, you say the history of religion, and you picture movements of people and wars and then proselytizing and entire countries converting. And I mean, there's so much to say. He's like, nah. Right. Rocks, incense, <laughs> bread. I mean, this is the basics. Right. And so it's interesting to me to think, do I have any sort of sacred objects? Maybe the closest things I can think of are, I have one letter from my grandfather who died when I was 10. But when I was eight, I wrote him a letter. Oh, nice. Assignment from Cub Scouts. Thank you, <laughs> Cub Scouts. To say, tell me about your life. And he hardly ever wrote anything. He was a dairy farmer. Right. And I can just picture his gigantic hands trying to hold a little pen and writing back to me. But he told me, about his parents' life in Holland and him. And he was saying, you know, I've had a lot of jobs. I'm not really great at any one thing, but I was really good at choosing good grandmas. <laughs> and, and I just thought he could do anything because he had done everything from being a dairy farmer to a railroad man to you name it. He could do anything. Wow. He just didn't think he was great. That letter is maybe as close to a sacred object as I have. That is beautiful. So the first interview with Rain Wilson, he was talking about this soul boom, a spiritual revolution, and kind of an internal one we can do, but we also as communities. And we asked him questions that he asked us as readers, what's sacred? Right. And one question I asked him was, can a conversation be sacred? And he thought about it and came around to, yes, the right subject. And I think we've all had those conversations where this kind of a sacred moment appears when you have this great conversation with someone you trust on a spiritual topic, which is what I hope we do all the time on In Good Faith. Many thanks to Rain Wilson and S. Brent Plate for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Ingebretson, Leah King, Tanya Lockett, and Katarina Martinich. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.